Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Today is an exciting day because we're going to study the book of Acts. Um, we study the book of Acts here at Red Hills Church back in 2015. Uh, that message is online. You can go back and listen to it if you want. Um, and I taught the entire book of Acts in five weeks. This study is going to be a little bit longer. It'll probably take us about 21 weeks to do Acts this time because I'm going to slow it down. Uh, Last time I I didn't do verse by verse. We covered chunks of scripture and then I read a little bit. But this time we're going to do our best to just go verse by verse. About a chapter a week. Some weeks we'll cover a little more because the chapters are shorter. But this message on Acts will be longer, but, but it will also include... Um, more maps. Um, And timelines. I've got a timeline for you today. Uh, So I'm a visual learner and it helps me digest when I get the concept of stuff. And so I'll be throwing some stuff up on the screen behind as we go through this. Because Acts is primarily a historical book. It is the partner book to the book of Luke. We'll get into that in a minute. But our goal for reading at this time is twofold. The first goal is to see Isaiah's vision of the glory of the Lord spreading across the entire world and Gentiles coming to saving faith. So if you were with us the end of last year, we studied the book of Isaiah from about 4th of July all the way up to the Sunday before Christmas. Um, Those are online if you wanna go back and listen to the message series on Isaiah. But the the core message was that, uh, towards the end of the book, was that God was doing this miraculous new thing where he was gonna start calling the nations to come to him. And we, all of us in this room, sitting in Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida, are the fruits of that work, okay? We're here because of what we're about to read about. Following the resurrection of Jesus, These 12 guys were empowered with the Spirit and the gospel spread like wildfire across the entire world and it didn't matter what the world or Satan tried to do to stop it, it couldn't work. And we're all sitting here because of it. And that is a important reminder for the work of God today. If it couldn't, if feeding Christians to lions couldn't stop this thing, I know that the latest news reports say that church attendance is declining and the world is looking, listen, I'm telling you, nothing is stopping this train. And there's a reason why. Because this is not just a philosophy. This is just not a, this isn't just another religion that you lump in with other thought experiments from the rest of the world, there is something unique about what God did through this movement, and it includes the empowering of his spirit. And that is the secret sauce. 
okay? It's not because we had our team stacked with a bunch of really good teachers. It's because the Spirit of God used the weakest of men and women to spread this thing like wildfire. And that is good news for us because we are counted among the weakest of the world, especially today. We are the ones as seen with the narrowest views. We have no tolerance for other people. We're, we're mean. Some of that, that's honest. We earned it. Sometimes we cannot be very nice. But man, in, in our weakness, he is made strong. And that is because the Spirit of God lives and resides on the inside of his people and empowers that weakness and those gifts to accomplish much more than we could ever accomplish on our own. And that is important to consider as we move through this book. So, two things to consider. We're reading this because we wanna see what happened with Isaiah. This is the second, this is the, 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 the next logical step in where we're studying. Um, but I also wanna study the book of Acts so that we can learn early church history to inform the modern church. Okay, follow me here. Um, because what I'm about to say um, will cause some of you to get upset and I probably won't even see you next week. I'm not kidding. Studying this book and the things that are happening in this book is the kind of thing that birthed denominations. Because we don't like the idea that God could take control and do things that we had not sanctioned. And that is exactly what happened with 120 guys who got in a room and started praying and all of a sudden the spirit started falling on them and things started happening that no one could explain. And all of a sudden people who couldn't walk started walking and people who couldn't see could see. People who were possessed by demons had those demons cast out. Why am I saying this? Because in the modern church, where we stand today, there are two ways to approach the book of Acts. And I am a firm believer that it is important to not just tell you the point that I fancy and that I like, is to give you a logical understanding of what our other brothers and sisters believe and, 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 and how some of you may believe this way. And I wanna be clear, it doesn't matter where you fall um, as far as what we're about to discuss, we're all family. Like when I taught through Matthew and I explained to you how I see the end times rolling out and how I told you, hey, um, I'm just gonna let you know, I think we're going through the tribulation. Some of you are like, <laughs> I hope you're wrong. We can, we can have different agreements, uh, different perspectives on that. It's fine, we don't have to fight about that. But I want, this is important to address before we get into the book because it informs how I'm gonna teach the book. You with me? The first, point of view, the, the, the first view of the book of Acts is that this account, this book, is a recording of a closed period in church history where the apostles led and laid the foundation of the early church with signs and wonders and miracles and those signs and wonders and miracles came at the hands of the apostles. And once those apostles passed away towards the end of the first century, all of those signs and miracles and wonders, all of those things ceased when they passed away. That when the book of Acts is done, that's kind of the closing of this. By the end of the first century, we don't see that stuff in church history anymore. That is a view that's called cessationist. 
And it comes from the idea that the gifts and the moving and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit ceased when the apostles passed away. That is a valid view. I have a lot of good Christian friends that hold that view. It is not a, a point of contention. You may hold that view. That is one view of Acts. The other view of Acts is that this is just the beginning of church history. It is a foundation that was laid by the apostles, but it's an expectation to continue as normal life in the history of the church. That view is called continuationism. I don't know who came up with these things, but I imagine a bunch of nerdy guys sitting around brainstorming words, and now we've got two different camps, cessationists and continuationists. Continuationists would believe that the gifts, the signs, the dreams, the miracles, the wonder, the things that you see in the book of Acts, empowered by the Holy Spirit are things that don't end when the apostles die, they continue on throughout the life of the church. Now, why am I addressing this? I'm addressing this because as Christians, depending on your view on that specific issue, it will affect how you read the book of Acts. Now, there are a couple things in our family, church family, that kind of everyone likes drawing lines on. Like, you want to you have a church fight? Let's discuss whether women can stand in leadership roles or not. You want to have a fight? Let's discuss whether the, the spiritual gifts outlined in 1 Corinthians 12 are still at work, like we see in the book of Acts, or not. You want to have a fight? Let's talk about when the Lord is going to return. Will it be before the tribulation or after the tribulation? Look, we've got a long history. Of like, we, we like fighting about stuff. We like being right. And I'm bringing this up because it will inform how we're going to read through the book of Acts. But I'm saying this because either Acts is a case study on how we got here and it can't be repeated, or it's a case study in what normal Christian life looks like. You have to pick one of those when you're reading through this book. And maybe you have picked one, and maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, I didn't know that I had to pick one. I want you to know where I stand because it will inform how I teach this book. I hold a continuationist view. I believe that this book is the beginning of something that spreads like wildfire and nowhere else in this Bible communicates to us that it ever stops, that it stops with the apostles. There's no indication in the text that the book of Acts is a closed um, time period and that it doesn't exist outside. In fact, I would argue that this view continues on through the rest of scripture much after Acts. First Corinthians 12, Paul gives an outline to the church in Corinth on how they're supposed to be using and operating spiritual gifts when they gather together. He extends that into 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, he also mentions it in Romans 12, uh, Ephesians 5, 18, Acts 2, 17 through 21, uh, Acts 10, Acts 21 through 9, all indicate that there are spiritual uh, manifestations of the Spirit when the Spirit imparts or empowers or just wrecks somebody's life, and this person is not an apostle, and there's not an apostle anywhere near this person when this thing is happening. 
So now that you know where I stand and why, where, where, we're gonna be, where I'm going to be teaching this from, the posture, you have an important decision to make. And some of you are just like, <laughs> I knew this whole thing was too good to be true. I knew you were some weird, crazy, charismatic. I knew it. I knew it, honey. I, I told you, didn't I? And look, I get it. I get it. I love you. And if this is not home for you and you're not here next week, I, I love you. I get it. This is a big deal for some people. But listen, it is a big deal for most people because the modern manifestation or demonstration of this are from some of the weirdest, bizarre, kooky people that you have ever met. And I would venture to argue that the reason why you may hold a cessationist view is because you're afraid of being lumped in with the other nuts who hold a continuationist view. I don't want to look like those people on TV who are selling bottles of holy water. I don't want to look like the nut who's running around and has no control. Look, I, I, I get it. I hold a continuationist view not because I have experienced some supernatural spiritual things in my Christian walk, though I have. I hold a continuationist view because I believe that that is what the Bible teaches. Now, at this point, you have to consider how much your experience has informed where you stand on this specific issue. Because in life, you can use your experience to interpret the Bible. Okay, for example, I had this wild spiritual moment, and now I'm gonna find an example of it in the Bible, and that must be what the Bible means, because that's what happened to me. Or I had a bunch of really bad church experiences with some crazy people, and so I'm gonna interpret the Bible to support my hurt. But there's another way where you don't use your experiences to interpret the Bible, you use your, the Bible to interpret your experiences or the experiences of people around you. What I mean by that is if the Bible outlines that there is precedent for something in Scripture, then I must view my experience through that lens. I don't say, well, I had this crazy dream. Are there anybody with dreams in here? Okay, well, I guess, yeah, maybe, yeah, that was, that was a God dream. It's not how it works. The way it works is you let the Word of God inform your experiences. I had this weird thing. Is it in here anywhere? No. Then maybe it was the pizza I had last night. <laughs> My point being is that in everything, not just this issue, you have to approach your experiences, your emotions, your feelings being filtered through this. Okay, you can't allow your emotions and your feelings to interpret this. You can't read what you want out of this because of how you feel or what you experience with one specific person. What we have to do is we have to let this inform our experience. And so if this tells us this is what the Spirit of God was doing in moving through the early church, all right, then Lord, oof, move in my life that way. Oh, that is a scary prayer, isn't it? Because what is behind that prayer is, Lord, I'm going to take my hands off the handlebars. 
And I don't know what's going to happen. I might, I might face plant. I might, I might have some, some really bizarre, I, I, I may have a dream where you speak to me in a dream. Whoa, that's no, we don't do that anymore. Except that's exactly how God spoke to Cornelius and how the first Gentile ever even came to saving faith. Are you following with me? So one final thought, and I, I kind of, this is just a uh, reiteration. Originally, when I started this, I made the argument that we can disagree and still love one another. This is not an issue to fight over. It is something to humbly consider that maybe the way that I have viewed this has been informed more from a denomination or a book or a pastor I looked up to rather than the word of God. Or maybe the views that I hold need to be modified and changed because when I'm confronted with this, I have to make some different decisions. I'm convinced that if you became a Christian today and I locked you in a closet with only this for a year, you would not come out thinking, Spirit of God is not moving like he was in the book of Acts. I'm convinced from scripture that your takeaway would be that this is a slice of what normal Christian life looks like, okay? So that's why I'm teaching it this way. Because I think that this should be speaking to our church. I think that there's a way that the Spirit of God wants to empower his people through giftings, in their weakness to be able to accomplish far more than we have accomplished in the last 20 years. And I'll say this, I think that if we had been spirit-led over the last 20 to 30 years, rather than organizationally led or financially led, I think we would be in a very different place in the American church today. Let's go to Acts chapter one, if you're still with me. Acts chapter one, starting verse one, let's go through verse five. It says, in the book, excuse me, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Now this last one's important, verse five. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what's happening here is Luke is quoting John the Baptist, that the Holy Spirit was gonna baptize people. Now this is important, and this is important because the author of this book, Acts, is a guy named Luke, and Luke was a physician. Have you ever hung out with a physician? They have 19 words to describe like the same thing. Like, you broke your arm, is it a radial fracture? 
Like, and there's like 19 other, I'm not a physician, so I don't know the other names, but I, I have been in situations where doctors are like, oh, they've got all these words for things. And the reason why they do that is because these words are important. They describe very specific things that determine a course of action afterwards. And that's important to understand when we're studying Luke, because Luke is not just an, an, an uneducated writer who's just kind of using whatever words the Spirit is just leading him. He's a very methodical, very um, educated man. The, 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 the kind of Greek that he uses to write the book of Acts is the most educated Greek that exists at the time. And so when he uses a phrase or a specific group of words to describe something, it's important for us to understand what that is because it ties into other things and helps build our theology. And I'll come back to that in a minute, but one of them is gonna be in verse five when he uses that phrase. When he quotes from John, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now in these verses, Luke is recapping the events of Luke 24 following the resurrection. Now, if you go and you read the end of Luke, the end of Matthew, the end of Mark, the end of John, you're gonna get a very strange account of the things that happened right after Jesus rose from the dead. Sometimes it seems like he's appearing to just the disciples and then he ascends up into heaven. And then sometimes he's on the Emmaus road and then he's going to see these women and then he doesn't say anything to the disciples that, uh, that seemingly same day. It seems like they go up to Galilee. Um, and so when you put all these pieces together, it can be a little confusing about what happened following the resurrection. Luke is telling us that there were 40 days of something, and then we know there were 10 days from that period forward until Pentecost in Acts chapter two. So what I did was I put together a timeline to help us kind of wrap our head around the final few days before Jesus ascends and after his resurrection. So if you'll put that up on the, uh, the screen here, what you're looking at is the post-resurrection timeline. Um, the far left is the day of resurrection. This is Resurrection Sunday. This is when he comes back from the dead. And then uh, down here on the other end is Pentecost. Across the bottom is a dotted line where you see a timeline. So the first section is a 40-day period that Luke is referencing. And the last section is a 10-day. So what is happening in these first five chapters is Luke is recapitulating. There's that word again. He's recapping what he said at the end of his first book, Luke. Luke, the book of Luke, was a book about Jesus. Acts is, about, is a book about what happened afterwards. It's primarily historic. But let's look at the timeline. The day that Jesus rose from the dead, he, he resurrects from the dead. Then he appears to the women at the tomb. We also see him later that afternoon appearing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He opens their eyes, he walks them through the scriptures. We also see that he appears that evening to the disciples. He wags his finger at them. Uh, you, what are you guys, what are you doing? How come none of you guys were even there Sunday morning? What, what you, what, what's going on? There was one disciple who was missing that day, Thomas. That whole next week, everyone's like, Thomas, you missed it. You missed it. Thomas is like, I don't believe it. I'm not gonna believe that he rose from the dead unless I put my fingers in the holes that they drove the nails through. Well, Thomas got his wish. The very next Sunday, Jesus appears to all of the disciples and Thomas and makes Thomas put his hand in the holes. And, and Thomas is like, no, I really, that was, I don't really have, no, no, do it, Thomas, do it. After that, he instructs the disciples to go up north to Galilee where all of the ministry began. And that includes during that 40 days, he's up ministering with them. We're told that he eats with the disciples. We're told that he ministers with them. He talks with them. He trains them. He teaches them. Um, imagine being taught by the resurrected Jesus. I mean, that's something, huh? Uh, and then they travel back down to Jerusalem 
and they gather on the Mount of Olives, and the ascension happens, and that's what we're about to read. Following the ascension, you've got 10 days where the disciples are told to go up into the upper room and just wait for the Holy Spirit to show up. All right, so following, so we got the 40 days, you've got the ascension, and you got the day of Pentecost, and at that moment, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up. It's not just the disciples in that upper room, it's 120 in that upper room. Now, um, let's draw our attention to verse uh, uh, five. Um, We're we're gonna come back to the ascension in a minute, but what I wanna do is I wanna look in that phrase that I I told you just a moment ago that we need to look at Luke's words and examine them. He says in verse five that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now that last event, Pentecost, that is the event that is being described here, being baptized with the Holy Spirit, that is the day of Pentecost. And it's described, Luke uses the phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now that phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, is a phrase that is, that is used seven times in the entire Bible. It is used uh, one, two, three, four times in the Gospels. It's mentioned in Matthew 3.11, Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, and John 1.33. And every one of those times, they're referencing John the Baptist when he's baptizing people, saying, hey, you think this is good? You wait until the Spirit shows up. Jesus is gonna baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire, okay? So we know that there's an event coming in the future. Every one of the gospel writers reference it. We know it's the, and because now in Acts 1, 5, we see that this event is now connected. So what John was talking about was the day of Pentecost. Being baptized in the Holy Spirit happens at the day of Pentecost. You, you following me? So this phrase is also referenced in Acts eleven sixteen. So that's four, five, six, that's six references of it. And in Acts eleven sixteen, it's speaking of the day of Pentecost. It's mentioned one other time by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and in that section, he's speaking of getting saved. He says, we were all baptized into one spirit. So when Paul uses the phrase, baptized in the Holy Spirit, what is he talking about? What is Luke talking about? What are the gospel writers talking about? Well, they're all talking about the same thing. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is salvation. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is getting saved. And all of the gospel writers were pointing to this moment at Pentecost because that's the moment when everyone starts getting saved. Following that moment, 3,000 people get saved. And you don't see that phrase mentioned in any other moments other than that one experience of Pentecost that doesn't happen ever again because it doesn't need to because that's when the Holy Spirit was poured out and it just kept spreading everywhere. It didn't need to be poured out again. Now, if you come from a traditional Pentecostal background or uh, Assemblies of Gods, um, their tradition, their denominational tradition would use a different uh, description for this phrase. When they say baptism of the Holy Spirit, what they're describing from their perspective is a second event that takes place after salvation. And they would use Pentecost as an example. They would say that's just, 
you know, something that is a model that is supposed to be followed afterwards. So there's a moment where people get saved, and then there's a moment where you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that baptism in the Holy Spirit always is, is always demonstrated. You know it happened because there is an outward manifestation of the person speaking in tongues. That is the traditional Pentecostal Assemblies God view, okay? You've got somebody who gets saved, and then somewhere after the line, hey, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Oh yeah, I got saved. No, 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 there's something else. You know about the something else? And the something else comes with something really special. Now I'm kind of joking because this is the tradition that I grew up with. This is how I was taught. This is the view that I used to hold, but I don't hold this view anymore. And the reason why is because this view though taught eloquently and seemed to make sense at the time, when I compare that experience or that teaching to scripture, I can't reconcile it scripturally. Scripturally, what I see is these writers being very specific and using this phrase to describe one specific thing, and that is getting saved. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is what happens. When you get saved, man, you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. You get all Jesus, you get all the Spirit, it fills you, and you are saved. The Holy Spirit is the sign, it's the, it's the symbol. Christ died so you could receive the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when you get saved. You get baptized in the Holy Spirit, and it all started on that day of Pentecost. But Luke uses this phrase a lot in the book of Acts, and we'll read it a lot as we move forward, there's no reference here yet, but it's coming in chapter two. He uses this phrase, being filled with the Spirit. And he uses this phrase a lot. And this phrase, being filled with the Spirit, always happens, when it happens, when, when the Spirit of God fills somebody, immediately following this moment, when Luke describes, and, and this person was filled with the Spirit, then something miraculous took place. Either the person was filled with the Spirit and now they had some empowered boldness that they did not have before to preach to a crowd of people and 3,000 people got saved. Or then they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Or they were filled with the Spirit. Stephen, this happens to Stephen. He gets filled with the Spirit as he's being stoned. People are throwing these rocks at him and killing him because of his faith. As this is happening, the Bible says he's filled with the Spirit and he starts asking the Lord to forgive them. And this phrase, filled with the Spirit, it happens numerous times to some of the same people over and over again who were at the day of Pentecost, who were baptized in the Holy Spirit and were saved. It happens to these people regularly over and over and over. And sometimes it, there's some marvelous like, demonstration, but then you see in other times uh, throughout Scripture, Ephesians 5, 18, be drunk with wine, excuse me, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. There's this command that Paul gives. The verbs he uses there would most, most accurately translate it as be, being filled, do it regularly on a continual basis. 
lends itself to this understanding, follow me here, is that biblically we're supposed to view salvation as this experience where we are baptized in the Holy Spirit and we get all of God and the Spirit of God fills us right here, but following that experience is these regular moments where the people of God are filled even more with his presence to accomplish his purposes and his plans. Sometimes those fillings come with a manifestation of the Spirit, prophecy, speaking in tongues, uh, word of wisdom, miracles. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes we're just told to pray, to be filled with the Spirit so that we're not quenching it constantly, but we're filled up. And you, you might ask, well, how can, you be, how can a glass that's all the way full be filled anymore? Well, a full glass doesn't hold the same amount of water as a full gallon jug. So what we're talking about is increasing our capacity. If I take a balloon and I blow into it, this is a, an illustration Wayne Grudem uses in his systematic theology book. He says, if I blow into a balloon as much as I could possibly blow, it's full, right? Until I blow some more air in it, and then it's full. It's always full as I'm blowing into it. So there's this understanding for the Christian that when I get saved, I get the Holy Spirit, I get Jesus, I'm, I, am, I am fully his. But there's also this expectation all through the book of Acts, all through the New Testament, that we should continually be seeking that more God, fill me even more. Fill me up even more. Because there's a lost world out there that needs to hear the gospel, and I'm too weak to preach it. What's a good example of this? A good example of this would be um, uh, like uh, how God empowers and equips um, specific gifts and people. Um, I have a gift of teaching, okay? Biblically, that's called a spiritual gift, um, the gift of teaching. Um, now, but I, I went to college for it. I went to Florida State. I studied uh, communication. I have formal training in teaching. And so aside from the spirit, um, I can find my way around. You know, I, I can teach pretty well. But that doesn't cut it when we're building God's stuff, okay? If we're building God's kingdom, my ways don't work. My power doesn't work. When we're building God's stuff, what is required is God working through us to build his stuff. And so every time I teach on Sunday morning, there is this, I pray one prayer before I ever step on the stage. And I, I, I don't do it publicly, I do it just privately before I, before I walk out, I say, Lord, fill me with your spirit to preach your word. Because, listen, I can, I can structure this in a way where it's like, oh, that was interesting. Map, maps, that was wonderful. Okay, I like this. But that doesn't change hearts, does it? You know what changes hearts? Is when the Holy Spirit sets Something that I say on fire and it pierces down into your heart and it bores a hole in your, in your soul and, and, it, and, it, and then you feel empty until God starts filling that area. And, and then you can't stop thinking about something I said. And then later, and it's funny, this happens constantly. People come up, they're like, man, that was, that was a good word. So that, what you said was really powerful. And I have to say, what did I say? I mean, I spoke for like 45 minutes. What did I don't, what, what did I say? And then some, Kanani's great at this. She'll, she'll send me the timestamp of my message. At 42.51, you said this. I was like, praise God. That's not me. That's not because I said something clever. That's not because this was delivered with some eloquency. That's because the Spirit of God set the words on fire Look, I'm not that good. None of us are that good. 
But when the Spirit of God anoints your natural gift, you start accomplishing things that you could have never accomplished in your own strength. I love talking to Christy about worship. She is the most humble, when you tell her, Christy, that was powerful. Wow, praise God. When you talk with her about her gift, she says, she's like, I don't feel like my voice is that strong, I don't feel like I'm that good of a leader, I could be better, but true or not true, when she leads worship, fire. I'm, I'm quoting you. My point is, this is not reserved for some apostles or just a f- two or three few people. I'm talking about the fact that this is, this is for everybody. This is for you. This is, this is exactly what you need. You've been praying, okay, I, I'm in this job and there's this guy in this cubicle over here and like I just know God is telling me, go talk to this dude, but I don't know what to say. There's, there's something for that. That's what the Spirit of God is for. So you pray, Lord, fill me with your words. <laughs> fill me with your boldness. Empower me with your boldness to accomplish the things that I can't accomplish. And you just walk over and say, hey, so do you want to go to lunch? <laughs> Maybe we talk about, you know, I, do you go to church anywhere? I, you know, I go, to, I go to Red Hills. You know, do you ever read the Bible? You know, Jesus is. And all of a sudden, I promise you, without fail, you start opening your mouth and stepping out by faith. You just do this by faith. You don't, I don't know where I'm going, but by faith, I trust that God's going to get me where I'm supposed to go. I open my mouth. All of a sudden, you start, things are coming out of your mouth. Like, ah, that ain't me, that ain't me, that ain't me. And so what I'm saying is that what's in this book and what is promised here just in these first five verses is power from on high to accomplish things that you can't accomplish in your own strength. And some of you have been like, man, I can't shake this feeling that there's something else. I can't shake this feeling that like I'm missing something, that like, like when I worship, when I read the word, that it's just like, when I witness it, I just, well, well you are. Because you're doing it in your own strength. Praise God, you're reading the Bible. Praise God, you're worshiping. Praise God, you're witnessing. But are you being spirit-led? Because I'm telling you, when you say, Lord, just tell me what to say. Lead me where you want to go. Anoint this word. I'm gonna be faithful to just preach the word. It may be it may be power, like whatever. Just anoint it so that you can do things that I cannot do in my own strength. Look, when you start praying prayers like that, I hope you've got a seatbelt. Go to verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, so, so we're jumping back to, in the timeline to the ascension. So when they had come together, so they're all standing on the Mount of Olives, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> Man, these guys are a piece of work. Spent 40 days with the risen Lord being taught from the risen Lord, eating with the resurrected Jesus, and they want to know when the kingdom of Israel is going to be restored. Lord, when, when, when are we going to overthrow Rome? Is that tomorrow? Do we do it soon? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. That's not for you to worry about. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what you should concern yourself with. Not when God's going to do his next big thing, but when are you being obedient to the things he's called you to, which is be my witness. And when he said these things, as they were looking onto him, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was gazing, excuse me, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These were angels. 
And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he's going to come back in the same way you saw him. Jesus is going to return in the same way that he was lifted up. Pause right there in verse 11. Now we start to understand why the Holy Spirit is so important. Because you could spend 40 days with a resurrected Lord and still not get it. Look, I know that you, you might think you're special and you're like, man, give me 40 days with the risen Lord. I'll get it. No, you won't. And what's so, what's so marvelous about this is that we're convinced that, man, things would be different if I could just like see Jesus and like be in the room with him. If I had like a legitimate physical encounter with the Son of God, like I would never doubt, never be. No, no, there's a whole list of people who did that and they doubted constantly. And what does Jesus tell us in, in this ascension? He's telling us that it is better to be filled with the Spirit than it is to have the resurrected Jesus in your living room eating dinner with you talking about the Scripture. Uh, I don't know about that. No, Jesus is clear. His mission can't be accomplished on earth. <laughs> is there a cat in the air conditioning? <laughs> it's a new noise. The, 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 the work of God cannot be accomplished on earth without his people being filled with his spirit. They need God's power to accomplish his plans. All right. Go to verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot and Judas, the son of James, not the other Judas, this is the son of James. All these were in one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Interesting, first time we see Jesus' brothers hanging out up until this point, they're laughing at him and mocking him and they don't believe that he's the son of God until after he actually comes back from the dead. That was enough. So now all of these people, in verse 15, those days Peter stood up among them. The company of this room was about 120. So 120 people are in this upper room. Church tradition tells us it was probably the house of uh, Mary, the mother of John Mark. You know John Mark? He's the guy who wrote the book of Mark. He was a young man at this period, but his mom had a big house with lots of upper room. Church tradition tells us this was probably in that upper room. Peter stands up at that point and he says, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Interesting. So now Peter is letting us know that David saw the Messiah, saw Jesus, and wrote about him in the book of Psalms. Verse 17, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in his ministry. Now this man, he, now uh, Luke is taking a, a little sidebar to explain who we're talking about, this Judas character. This man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And it, be it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, 
that is field of blood. And you may be comparing what you know from another account in the Gospels of what happened to um, Judas. I thought that he hung himself. Well, uh, church tradition says that he bought the land with the money. He hung himself and the rope broke and he fell and his bowels gushed out. But Peter's standing up, now that we're out of the sidebar and we know who Judas is, Peter is talking in verse 20. It says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, he's quoting Psalm 69, 25, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. In verse 109, 8, he says, let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was, there's another cat, when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they put forth two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry of apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them and they fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So the 120 were instructed by Jesus to go wait and we're told that waiting did not look like sitting in a corner bored. Waiting to these guys who had just spent 40 days with Jesus looked like praying, reading scripture, and then obeying scripture. That's important. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. The concept of wait, biblically, does not mean, all right, God, whenever you wanna do your thing, Within the umbrella of waiting on the Lord, there is this understanding that God's people are actively doing something in the waiting period. While we're waiting for his second coming, are we just sitting around doing nothing? No, we're praying, we're reading, and we're obeying what we read. Now, what we're reading here is like a calm before the storm. Because what we're witnessing is 120 guys, men and women, up in this upper room, praying and waiting and asking God, fill your people. Send the promised Holy Spirit. And what follows, which we'll cover next week in chapter two, is God's Spirit is poured out and 3,000 people get saved. And what follows that event, is the Spirit of God starts spreading like wildfire through homes, through cities, through the entire known world. I love this. You, you start here in this little room with these people praying, and then God responds to that prayer by pouring out His Spirit, and it spreads around the entire community. And you stand over here and you look at this marvelous, Look what God did. Where did it start? It started in this little tiny prayer room. Out of this little prayer room, God pours out his spirit, but it's always tethered to these little folks in the back room praying. See where I'm going with this? I'm trying to encourage you to catch the vision that I have to pray for God to do this again. 
I told you, this book to me is just the beginning. This isn't a closed history. God's got a history of responding to his people and giving himself, pouring himself out on a people who are praying for it. And so I say, Lord, fill us again. Do it again. Now I'm not advocating for some kind of, like look, you can't schedule revival, all right? Like you can't put on a sign out of the church, revival next Sunday, that's not how this works. The Holy Spirit gives out the gifts as he sees fit. He proportions them out to who he sees fit. He, he moves in response to those who are praying, but his arm is not bent. It's not like he needs us. He's not sitting back waiting, well, I wish I could do something on the earth, but you guys won't do anything. That's not how this works. But anybody in this room who has children, you know what it's like to respond to the cry of a child. And our God is a heavenly Father, and he likes listening to the cries of his children and responding to those prayers. And so what I'm saying is, I pray regularly, Lord, fill your people once again. There's a couple of ladies who meet for prayer before the service in a back room that you might not know about. I met with them before the service and that's what we were praying. Lord, do it again. Fill this place and your people again. Because Tallahassee is a big nasty city. This world is a dark place. And if we're expecting to make a difference on our own strength, we're not making any progress. But, oh man, if the Spirit of God pours himself out and fills his people so we are empowered to say things that we would not normally say, to pray prayers we would not normally pray, to start walking in power that we have not previously even known existed, I promise you things in your life and in this city will start looking very differently. So folks, pray with me. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.